This is the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup podcast, and we're back from a bit of a summer break. A bit. A of bit one. of one. Actually, I got sick too, and so that's kind, <laughs> of, kind of a break s- from, from your health. <laughs> I took it. I took a lovely break from my health with a with a beautiful cold. Yeah, I and took a lovely break with like a sprained ankle. I know. So I'm taking a break for, from being able to walk properly. For, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. So Life we're we're just you know coming off of our breaks. Um, but today we're going to go over a few news items from the past few weeks. Yes. I'm Gwen Jordanay, and I'm an editor in the communications and marketing office at UC Santa Cruz. I'm Dan White. I'm a writer. And we're going to talk about the recent news from UC Santa Cruz, all of which you can find at news.eucsc.edu. All right, so let's jump in. First, I've got some research on forgetting and remembering. Well, you're remembering to talk about it. In Somehow I did not forget yeah. to do this. As it turns out, our ability to remember is closely linked to our ability to forget. How convenient. I know. I guess that makes sense, sort of. It seems like the same area of the brain, don't you think? It does, but it's something that trips me up all the time <laughs> when I really should remember things. I know. You know, like I've got, doesn't sound like it, but I've got about 18 pages of notes for this podcast for that uh, very reason. Oh, know. okay. Yeah. Well, so do I. I rattle my pages. Our memory system is designed to make things inaccessible, according to Ben Storm, an associate professor of psychology. And you know what? He says it's adaptive. It's not a failure. Which explains a lot, like why I can't remember what I'm supposed to be doing in like an hour. <laughs> I can't, the th- I saw that too and I can't understand how it's adaptive, how that would be a good thing <laughs> to have this brain that misfiles stuff all the time. Well, okay, so I think this will explain it. Okay. Um, that message he had is just one of the many insights about memory shared by Storm. And if you go to the story, um, there's a bunch of stuff in there that's really interesting. Storm's fascinated by how memory supports thinking, learning, and creativity. And it turns out most memory research is based on experiments that test a participant's ability to study and retrieve a list of words. So like subjects are given a list of words to remember and then asked to recall them. The act of retrieving some words actually makes people forget the others. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's called retrieval induced forgetting. And I'm sure I'm gonna forget that as soon as I'm done with this. Forgetting is part of learning and remembering, according to Storm. Our memory system pushes away some things in an attempt to remember other things. I wonder if that's just an attempt to avoid information overload in our brains. I mean, that I, would yeah, that, that could be could a be definitely. Well, it's designed to prevent non-target information from interfering with the retrieval of target information. So I mean, that also explains why when you're trying to remember to pick up milk and eggs at the store, you forget to buy bread. But amazingly, he says, our memories are not finite like a computer hard drive that, that fills up. The storage strength is effectively infinite, says Storm, which is fascinating. Does that mean that all your memories are actually still in your brain, like I, every single one? I think it's incredible that you don't ever wake up in the morning and your brain goes, okay, that's it. You've, you've exceeded your capacity. You can... I know. Could that be possible? I'm not sure, but Storm says it's retrieval that's difficult. Retrieval is severely limited, which is why forgetting helps. Sometimes random things will help you retrieve a memory. I know. Like a scent of something. Yeah, that's very true. Or just a string of words or something like that. Movie or book reference, yeah. 
All right. So what was I going to talk about next? I forgot. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't really help you segue uh-huh. to the next topic because what were you talking about before? Remember you were talking about like ham or something? <laughs> I forget. Anyway, um, now I have some gift news. Yes. Yeah. I'll remember this. Yeah. UC Santa Cruz has received gifts and matching funds to establish a $1.5 million endowment for the Vera Rubin Presidential Chair for Diversity in Astronomy. This is so cool. The endowed chair was created to advance the cause of diversity, equity, and inclusive excellence in astronomy. And this is what's great. The holder of the chair will embody the spirit of diversity in one of several ways, such as their proven ability to attract and train new astronomers from all walks of life. Sandra Faber, who you, of course, know, is um, a professor emerita of astronomy and astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz. And her husband, Andrew Faber, launched the campaign for the chair with an initial gift of $250,000. And the chair is named for the distinguished astronomer Vera Rubin, who is so inspiring. She was a champion of inclusivity in science. And Faber worked with her early in her career. And she said Rubin served as a model of a successful woman in a field dominated by men. But not only that, she also began to pave the way for all members of underrepresented groups, Faber said. How fitting that we get to sustain her memory with a chair. That's I great. know. Yeah. She's just reading about her is just is so incredible. Rubin helped transform modern astrophysics through her research on the rotation rates of galaxies making crucial contributions to the evidence that galaxies and stars are immersed in the gravitational grip of vast clouds of dark matter. Amazing, right? That is amazing. This is maybe a strange tangent, but every time someone gets a chair, I always wonder if they physically get, I always imagine like a throne or something. Oh, yeah, maybe that should be part of it. You should get like a gold chair. I think so. Hopefully not a throne that's like... Made of swords. Like a Barco lounger. <laughs> or a lazy boy. I guess that would be for underperforming faculty with a lazy boy. <clears throat> Faber said she learned a lot about how to be an astronomer while working with Ruben. She was playing in the big leagues, and she was also raising a family, and that told Faber that she could do it too. That's part of how amazing this is. Diversity is so important to good science, and we'll look forward to hearing... Uh, to learning about the progress and discoveries that come from this new development. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, another great bit of news. There's a new graduate program in coastal science and policy at UC Santa Cruz, and its first cohort of students will be here in about a month. They start in fall 2018, so this is really exciting. We're going to get some new students in a new program. I felt like we were just seeing that building take shape, and now suddenly it's up and running. And they're going to be here. Yeah, it is. It's going to be a master's degree program that will prepare students to design and carry out solutions to the social, ecological, and technical problems facing the world's coastal ecosystems and communities. And you know, UC Santa Cruz has long been a leader in coastal science and in addressing real real world environmental challenges. And the program is designed to teach students the skills, knowledge, and approaches needed to solve solve threats and grasp emerging opportunities for coastal sustainability. And when they complete the program, they'll receive a Master of Science in Coastal Science and Policy. So cool. So welcome, new students. Welcome, new cohort. Cohorts, right? New cohort. 
All right, Dan, so what's on your news radar? I've got several things to talk about today. Uh, one, you know, people of a certain age, people like me, uh, when I was a child many, many, many years ago, and I was playing video games, I don't remember them having a whole lot of cultural import. I remember <laughs> Pong, like it just going back and forth. And I think maybe you couldn't have much cultural import because, well, in one part, for one thing, the graphics were so bad, mm -hmm. you couldn't really see what was going on. I remember this one game where I was supposed to be kind of a knight in shining armor and there was a something coming after me and I couldn't tell if it was a dragon or a chicken because it was so pixelated. <laughs> Video games, however, they've gone far from their oh, origins. Yeah. So much more complex in their visuals and storylines in these games now are have more far-ranging cultural dimensions. Now, yeah. in her new book on video games, The Visual Politics of Race, Gender, and Space, you see Santa Cruz professor Soraya Murray dives deeply into the cultural implications of these newfangled video games. So we're not talking Pac-Man, we're talking mm -hmm. the new generation. She's an interdisciplinary scholar of visual culture, and Murray, she's an associated professor of film and digital media who is also affiliated with the Digital Arts and New Media MFA program. And she also is the uh, Arts and Design, Games and Playable Media uh, BA program uh, division. Cool. Yeah. And um, in this book, she argues that various games, including The Last of Us, I've never heard of these no, games or played them, yeah. Metal Gear Solid, Special Ops, The Line, Tomb Raider, I've heard of that one, and Assassin's Creed are really tied up. They're very much intertwined with American ideological viewpoints as well as the current economic and political climate and cultural conflicts. In one way, it's the way those things kind of manifest in the storylines that she explains. And to give just one example of the argument she's making in a recent interview, she talked about a game called Metal Gear Solid V The Phantom Pain, Whoa. which is set in, uh, in part in Soviet-controlled Afghanistan in the 1980s. And uh, she said... It struck me as no accident that the background of this hyper-macho, military-themed action-adventure game was the very site where the Taliban came into being and eventually Al-Qaeda. She mentions that this taps into notions of the war on terror and the axis of evil, in quotes, in ways that are going to work on the player's emotions, even if they're not completely aware of how the game is working on them huh. emotionally, psychologically. Yeah. She describes video games as machines for thinking, and she says she wants people to be aware of this and have the tools to decide for themselves what kind of thinking machines they want to play with rather than the opposing scenario, which is just to let the games uh, work on you without you knowing what's going on. Mm. The other option, of course, it, for, for people may just not play video games and be like me and just play like, air hockey and <laughs> pinball. And I think you'll calm your nerves down a lot if you step away from the video games. But if it calms you down, then more power to you. Yeah. But also, in the book World, the critically claimed author Raina Grande, she's an alum, by the way, graduated from here in 1999 with a uh, bachelor's in creative writing, film, and video. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote an op-ed that was published in the New York Times on August 11th entitled the impossible choice my father had to make. Oh. No parent wants to put his or her child's life at risk, but for families like mine, crossing the border was our only hope for a better future. And this was 
a, a well-read, influential editorial, by the way, and she mm-hmm. writes, while, while Ms. Trump's father was separating thousands of families through his zero-tolerance policy, I thought about my own father and the choice he had to make. Leave me behind in Mexico or put my life at risk by bringing me to America for a chance at a better future. It was not a decision he made lightly, said Grande in the New York Times. And I'm quoting verbatim from the story because it's so powerful, I felt like I wanted to share a few of her words without just sort of summarizing uh, yeah. She goes on, while while she is passing judgment on immigrant parents like my father, her father's administration is making it harder for families to seek legal entry into the United States by tightening the standards for asylum and legal migration. Now, now a U.S. citizen, Grande grew up in extreme poverty in rural Mexico. She was only two when her father left Mexico to look for work in the U.S. Her mother followed two years later, leaving Grande behind in Mexico. Mm-hmm. In 1985, when she was almost 10 years old, Grande crossed the border as an undocumented immigrant. Fast forward to now, and Grande is currently the author of three critically acclaimed books. So um, she is uh, really making her views known to a wide audience, and it was really great to see her editorial get so much press. get so much readership in the paper. So, yeah, uh, and present a, you know, present a really important perspective. And she has been writing about this for a long time. Her last book, The Distance Between Us, was a memoir about her life before and after illegal, illegally immigrating from Mexico to the U.S. If you want to delve deeper into her mm-hmm. thoughts about this and background, Distance Between Us would be a great place to start. I also wanted to mention a wonderful recent happening on our campus. A few weeks back, Gwen and I and our very capable colleague, J.D. Hillard, went to UC Santa Cruz to attend the Dickens Universe, and what a blast that was. So fun. Yeah, oh my gosh, so fun. And uh, for 39 years, fans of Charles Dickens have been traveling from all over the world to attend this the universe, which is a joyous and sometimes raucous <laughs> convocation that's a really an amalgam of things. It's part literary conference, part festival, part summer camp. There were lectures, farces, Victorian tea. There was a crash course in the fine points of Victorian dancing. Mm-hmm. While we were there, it was crazy. There was, a, there, there was a humorous skit they were practicing in, in which they were doing a Katy Perry song, I Kissed a Girl, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but with Charles Dickens in-joke references, I think I got about one out of every 10 references. And yeah. Anyhow, this year, and you can listen on the fun because this year we came prepared. We brought our recording equipment. Yeah. Story Crews dropped in on the universe to explore the mysteries of Little Dorrit. That was the chosen book for 2018. And what we really wanted to find out as we interviewed various people wandering along the festival, why is it that Dickens is still such a literary superstar when so many other Victorian novelists are kind of in the literary dustbin? <laughs> and because in the answer that people told us was he's got this rich, heartbreaking, sometimes hilarious language, his keen eye for character and dialogue, his wonderful love of story, his sense of injustice, his skewering of hypocrisy. In my prediction, Dickens is never going to go out of style, and so the conference will keep thriving. So here's your chance to get this audio immersion if you've never gone to one of the gatherings. So uh, where will people find this on the line? Online, Uh, rather? If they go to news.ucsc.edu and scroll down to the Story Cruise icon, then they can peruse all of our podcasts, including that one. So almost contradicting your previous broadcast when you talked about forgetful things. I mean, that was Gwen was not consulting her notes when she said that. That was total that was recall. recall. Exactly. Total recall. And by the way, uh, if you're interested in hitting the Dickens universe next year, and the dates are July 14th 
through 20, 2019. It is a week-long conference. And I'll give you the inside scoop on this. If you want to start cramming now or slowly reading at your leisure, the chosen book next year will be Barnaby Rudge, and registration opens in January 2019. Awesome. Cannot wait. It's going to be a good one. All right. Well, speaking of cool events that are happening, um, one I want to mention is coming up. It's called The Craw Lecture, Bugs, Bones, and Ancient DNA with Beth Shapiro, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. It's September 20 at 6 p.m. at our Silicon Valley campus in Santa Clara, and there'll be a wine reception to start and then the lecture at 7. And admission is free. A leader in the field of ancient DNA, Shapiro uses genetic material recovered from the remains of plants and animals that lived long ago to study evolution and explore how species and ecosystems have changed over time. She isolated the oldest DNA yet recovered from a 700,000-year-old horse bone. Isn't that astounding? Where'd they find that thing? Incredible. (laughs) How they even know is like, I would think that's probably like a rock (laughs) down there. Um, As well as the oldest viral DNA and RNA. Her research is helping us gain an understanding of how species, populations, and ecosystems changed leading to better decisions about how to use limited resources to preserve and protect species and ecosystems in the face of current climate change. By the way, I saw a teach-in with Beth Shapiro about should we clone the woolly mammoth if we could, and I just want to put a word in for her lecturing style because if you find yourself intimidated by the topic as we described it, very approachable, very interesting, inspiring, fascinating, so it should be a, a a good time for people. Cool. As yeah. Well as edifying. Definitely. Uh, yep. Go to specialevents.ucsc.edu slash craw with a K, K R A W hyphen lecture for information and to register. Okay. So that's it for this time. Happy. See you all next time. Yes. Uh, see you all next time and happy September, everyone. Amazing. It's already September. All right. Take care, everybody. Take it easy. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.